the biggest thing here is if you really want to have people engage on an ongoing basis, learn what you're talking about on the education front of your advocacy program, it's super important to vary your content assets. Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm Adam Belmar. Our intrepid host, NABPAC Executive Director, Michaela Isler, is off this week. Have you ever spotted someone you want to know but don't across the room at a professional event? Sometimes it happens on LinkedIn. I often try to seize the opportunity to introduce myself and strike up that first conversation. Well, today's show is an example of just that type of situation. Up until this week, I knew about our guest today, but I hadn't met him. Austin O'Boyle is Director of Advocacy at Aristotle, and his career path has put him on my radar some time ago. But again, even as I followed his work, social media posts, and thought leadership, I didn't know him. Well, I'm happy to report that I rectified that situation, and today I'm going to pay it forward and do the same for all of you. Coming up in just a minute, Austin O'Boyle joins the number one PAC podcast in America to talk about advocacy and share his philosophy on making the most of your engagement and activation campaigns. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAP activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Getting to know new people in our community and building relationships is one of the best parts about being a member of NAPAC. It's also one of the greatest benefits of working on this podcast. Our guest today is someone who has deep experience in advocacy. Austin O'Boyle was named Top 20 in 2022 Award winner by the Advocacy Association, a 2022 Top Grassroots Professional by the National Institute for Lobbying and Ethics, and a Top Lobbyist by The Hill in 2021 and 2022. Austin, welcome to the Facts About PACs podcast. Hey, Adam. Well, thank you to both you and APAC for having me on today. I've listened to numerous episodes of the podcast. There's always so much great information shared by both you, guests, Michaela, Uh, So I'm very grateful and excited to be a guest today. Outstanding. And it's great to have you. Uh, I'm sorry that Michaela is not here, but even the most mighty deserves some rest and she's getting some of it right now. Hey, Austin, you're a native New Yorker. And something that I appreciate about you is you have an interesting resume before your current position. Can you share with everybody listening your early work in the private sector, the Georgia State Assembly, and even at the National Apartment Association? What did all of that teach you about advocacy? Yeah, no, I've kind of run the gambit on different roles in the political sphere, but in all of them, I've gotten to see how powerful individual voices can actually be when it comes to making a difference. You know, whether it's on a campaign, whether it's on a, a policy issue at the state or even the federal level, individuals can really drive an impact. You know, and I think the best example that I have of this is when I was at the National Apartment Association, we started a program called the At-Home Advocacy Program. Essentially, what we did was we started talking to our advocates within our membership about the importance of meeting with lawmakers in district, at home. This was during the peak of the pandemic. So, you know, federal lawmakers especially weren't having a lot of DC meetings besides virtual means. So we were faced with a legislative challenge. Essentially, they were going to extend the federal eviction moratorium, uh, which would have just crippled the rental housing industry at the time. Um, so we you know, took action. We started the program. We told people, listen, it's very important that you as an individual, not only inform lawmakers of how this policy is going to impact you and your business, but 
how it's going to crush the broader industry. And our folks took action, right? The National Apartment Association membership really mobilized. We held over 85 in-district meetings um, in just the August recess, and we ended up defeating the bill. You know, and I always use that as the example of it doesn't just take a direct lobbying team to make an impact. It really comes down to constituents and how they have relationships with lawmakers. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that lesson and the way we all learn it. It really sort of jumped out at us in the effectiveness during the pandemic. But our podcast that we are conversing on today was conceived around that time as another way to harness voices and to bring people together and to build on the learnings in the employee funded and business trade association PAC space. So I feel it and I feel like everybody in our audience can understand it. But of course, making it happen and helping people in that mission is kind of where you are these days. And from talking to you, I I know that you're working on building and growing and delivering a lot of advocacy technology along with consulting services to your clients. What do you say to sort of the broader government affairs audience listening about advocacy initiatives? Uh, What's your guidance about the ways to approach and the way you approach? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Advocacy is always shifting, right? I think, yeah, you know, it used to be form emails, sending letters or making phone calls in mass, right? It was all very volume. I like to call it micro versus macro in the advocacy world. It was a very micro approach going back to high school economics class, you know, micro versus macro. But what we see a lot of clients and a lot of organizations in the space doing right now is moving away from primarily focusing on the micro side or, you know, getting all of those emails out and tracking these pretty metrics, if you will, to show their board and everything like that, and moving more towards the macro side of the advocacy equation, which focuses on tangible relationships, year-round comprehensive programs that focus on real engagement and real mobilization. Because the biggest thing here is I think advocacy for a long time, it was checking a box. It was a checking a box exercise where, you know, well, the lobbying team's got it covered. Our PAC is, you know, contributing where they need to. The advocacy is more something that is just checking the box for leadership and our membership. That's just not the case anymore. Um, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic showed how impactful communications to the Hill can be And there were so many channels that opened up, right? I mean, social media flourished in terms of tagging lawmakers and you're seeing lawmakers communicating back and forth with advocates. Um, Virtual meetings in district capacities are expanding exponentially right now. So it's just something where we're seeing a lot of people focus on these real relationships and the grass top side of advocacy where not only are they utilizing their advocates that have relationships already, but they're cultivating these relationships between their memberships, their employees, you know, whoever their stakeholders may be, and lawmakers through thoughtful, programmatic aspects. You know, it's very important not to just utilize grass tops advocates if and when you need them, but making sure you give them opportunities to advocate year round. If I had not known from the beginning of this podcast that you were really a grass tops and advocacy specialist, I'd think, oh, this guy's straight out of the PAC community because this is what you hear on this podcast. And this is what our NAPAC members know so well, that authentic, real relationships that are driven around important issues, they require human voices and real connection. And you don't turn that on and off and you don't look at that like a box checking exercise. You literally have culture and generation culture at your organization and in your industry and being able to tap into that in a real way, it's everything, Austin. Could agree with you more. 
What do you hear from your clients when, when they're coming to you and seeking guidance about advocacy initiatives? I can imagine that you start a conversation very much the way that we just did. What are the go-tos if we sort of define what it was and it's not working? What are the things people should be thinking about even tactically that really gets you excited or the things that you see promise in Austin? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that, you know, I'm currently doing and, you know, we're seeing more organizations interested in is gathering the full understanding of their actual program, right? And I think that's something that a lot of people overlook the importance of. I mean, if you've been, you know, at your company for, you know, a number of years or your association for a number of years, it's hard to see the entire program from the inside, right? It's important to kind of get a 30,000 foot view from the outside perspective of what's working, what isn't, where are some bottlenecks, um, you know, so we're doing, you know, some advocacy audits for clients, you know, kind of taking all of their data, taking their internal advocacy offerings and basically evaluating the effectiveness of them. Um, because it's something where just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't necessarily mean that it's still relevant <laughs> or working well. Um, you know, so it's something where we want to give honest feedback to clients about here's what's not working. Here's what we think, you know, would work better for your individual stakeholders because every organization is different. So I really like laying the groundwork with auditing their program, taking a look at how, you know, the the sausage is made, so to speak, in-house um, and kind of shaking things up a little bit, right? Because again, our philosophy here is we want to help you build an advocacy program that impacts policy outcomes. I don't I'm not focused on just metrics, right? Metrics are great. They're very important to help track data, to help fine tune things as you move along. But we're focused on building a advocacy program for clients that doesn't just help give you results right now on a campaign, but 10 years from now. That's that's our goal. So as a content producer myself, and I do podcasts in this industry, um, of government relations and public affairs. But one thing, and you talk about building, one thing that's very much at the fore right now is workforce recruitment and retention. I mean, every industry has got an eye focused on it because the labor market is so tight. Inflation is high. And as you'd expect, there is a push in Congress to develop and strengthen policies on this topic of the American workforce. You're working in this space right now, and I think it pertains not just to what you're doing, but what so many of our stakeholders are working on. Tell us about Tomorrow's Workforce Coalition, and what what does advocacy look like in that instance? Yeah, so the uh, Tomorrow's Workforce Coalition uh, is a coalition that's being run by ASAE, uh, the American Society of Association Executives, Mary Kate Cunningham, Jeff Evans over there at ASAE. Um, B, who's a, a new addition to the team, they're, they're all working very hard to help bring support to the Freedom to Invest in Tomorrow's Workforce Act. You know, essentially, you know, the coalition right now, as it stands, we have a little over 560 organizations within the coalition. So it really comes down to participating organizations, meeting with lawmakers on behalf of the coalition, sending letters to Congress on behalf of the legislation. We've left the coalition up to the participant, the individual organization for how much they want to be involved. Obviously, we're encouraging them to be involved as much as they can be. But this is legislation that's very important, you know, not just to the association community, but to all employers across the country. So whether that's writing a letter to certain offices or that's setting up meetings for your stakeholders to actually talk about why the bill is important, you know, we want folks to be able to make their voices heard how they feel comfortable. And that's kind of how we structure this coalition. It occurs to me that 
some of the lessons that everyone has learned about, as you said at the beginning, what's effective in terms of meeting lawmakers where they are when they were back in district and being more personal and not having something that was more formatic that was being sent a thousand times, but something that was more authentic that really showed that this was an individual in your constituency who's sending a message and saying, this is important to me. How are you working on this or why should we you know, have reason for hopeful outcomes. Are any of those learnings sort of manifesting themselves? Are there small group meetings? Are there ways that people can interact that are not so familiar? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just important to kind of think outside the box, right? And I think that that's something that we see more organizations doing on the advocacy front. Um, you know, I, I've seen a couple letters to the editor programs where organizations are working with their membership or their stakeholders on writing a letter to the editor and getting those submitted in targeted districts. Um, but just, uh, you know, ideas like that, you know, I, I work with a client right now in the association space that, you know, we created a social media influencer program. You know, essentially we're, we're curating policy and advocacy content for them on a monthly basis where they're recruiting their members to post this and tag lawmakers and just kind of expand uh, recognition of their brand as well as their policy issues. So I think it's really something, just think outside the box. If you're looking to expand, you know, the internal advocacy within your organization, it's something where you know your membership, you know your employees better than anybody else, right? So whatever you think is going to help them engage and entice them to partake in your efforts, I, I think that's what we're seeing a lot more of now is people kind of taking the tailored approach and finding what works best for them specifically. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you you really have to do your homework and you got to be a good listener to be a good communicator. And I sort of am wondering when you think about creativity in advocacy, I know you talked about curation. Sometimes creation of original content is really important to it, this podcast and perhaps the movement of narrow casting in general to groups like ours uh, at NAPAC and the Facts About PACs. Is this something that you think people are open to? Does it serve effectively in that advocacy mix or is that not something that people are really invested in from your perspective right now? Well, I, I think it's something that people aren't invested enough in. Um, I'm of the train of, train of thought here that more is more um, when it comes to content assets. Um, you know, and I'll give you a quick kind of um, story, if you will, or an example. But I mean, you know, if you get on the DC Metro and you look around at how people are consuming content, which everybody is doing nowadays, you have people that are listening to a podcast on their cell phone, somebody watching an episode of their favorite show on a tablet, or you have somebody reading a traditional newspaper. The biggest thing here is if you really want to have people engage on an ongoing basis, learn what you're talking about on the education front of your advocacy program, it's super important to vary your content assets, video, podcast, infographics. You really want to make sure that you're doing more than necessary, not just for them to learn today, but also maybe they don't have time right now. They're going to go back and look at these things later on. You want to make sure that they're comfortable and confident to be able to retain that information and whichever medium suits the best. So that's my my thought there. Yeah, well, let me bat that ball right back across sure. the tennis net for you. I think that not only is that correct, but for the people who are creating the content, it is yet another opportunity to deliver a real human personal voice and articulation of the messages and the reasons and the arguments and the commiseration. Like, yeah, we're feeling it too. You're not alone out there. But here's even one more. And I think this is the one that in 2023, Austin, has kind of 
have blown my hair back. And it's the idea that things come in groups, right? People aren't just watching a show. They're like binging a podcast that's a supplement to the show, and they're involved in other ancillary offshoots of it. And this sort of ability to ingest all of the content that surrounds it and that connects you with the people who are like you is suddenly like palpable. Everybody from Hollywood to Silicon Valley seems to be on that train. Do you see that or am I sort of a little bit of an evangelist here? No, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the wave that we're on right now, right? That's where society is going. People can't get enough. I mean, my, my wife specifically is very, uh, she's enthralled with, you know, murder mystery stuff, right? So she won't just read a book. She'll then go listen to a podcast and watch a true crime documentary on Netflix, right? So it it they're willing to invest their time and their resources to listen or watch all of your content, especially if you can get them on the hook with it. So people definitely invest a lot of time in, in content consumption nowadays. I really believe that this sort of brush off idea that people don't have long attention spans is just demonstrably incorrect. They clearly do. They will binge an entire season of something or get involved in the whole kit and caboodle uh, around whatever it is that they're interested in from the, the content to the podcast to the behind the scenes kind of thing. And I feel like there's just so much out there to choose from. You got to narrow it down. And then, you know, maybe you are a picky eater, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of time today and you are going to go back and you know that that's there for you. And maybe this one form on this ride was more attractive. I don't know what it is. But people are finding for themselves a sort of bespoke media diet that respects differing tastes. Right. No, and I, I agree with you. And I think it, it comes down to you're competing for attention, right? So if you're actually making this content and producing this content, you, like you said, it's not that people have short attention spans. They just are very selective with what content they're going to give their time to. So if you're not catching them immediately out of the gate, the odds of them investing an hour with your content is slim. So it's something where you need to really speak to your audience specifically and find what, you know, checks those boxes for them to really throw all in. And instead of watching their favorite Netflix show, maybe they'll watch your video series or listen to your podcast instead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, advocacy and the work that you're doing to get people activated and to sort of get those messages to the people who can and should hear them is as much about accomplishing the mission as is about educating those who would get involved with it. And I think that it, it's all part of the same thing. And so I'm so grateful that you could be with us on the Facts About Packs. Austin O'Boyle, Director of Advocacy at Aristotle, thank you for being a guest on the Facts About Packs. Absolutely. Adam, I appreciate you bringing me on. And uh, yeah, I hope I could provide some valuable insight. And thanks to everybody downloading and sharing the Facts About PAX podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.